0: Welcome to this week's sermon from Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church, located in Kenmore, New York. Our senior pastor is Justin Olivetti. To reach Knox Church, please email us at office at or call us at 716 873 2423. Now, let's listen. Please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to be reading the last of Mark 11 and into Mark 12 here. Please, have a, please stand up as we read God's Word. So we'll be starting with uh, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants sent to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of Scripture... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of God. May we have the ears to hear it. May God add his blessing to it. Please have a seat. Quick poll, and I want some honesty here. Who here enjoys confrontation? Raise your hand. I don't want to see you after the service, okay? (laughs) Confrontation is everywhere in our lives, everywhere. And sometimes it's not just unavoidable, it's absolutely necessary. Parents, in fact, have to confront their kids' wrong behavior all the time to make sure they're doing the right thing, right? So there once was a mom who called her little boy and said, Come here. And he stood there, and she said, This morning there were two cookies in the pantry, and now there's just one. Care to explain what happened? And the little boy stared up at her with wide and trembling eyes and said, It was dark, and I didn't see the other cookie? That confrontation didn't go as well as they planned. But from here on out in the Gospel, Mark, we're going to see that confrontation just hits Jesus again and again, like waves of confrontation will crash against him. He's been battered by it since the start of his ministry, of course. But the, the intensity is now ramping up now that he's in Jerusalem. But what I love about this passage today is that we see how Jesus handles that confrontation with a mixture like Wisdom, tenderness, and firmness all at the same time. What I also love about it even more is that he uses this confrontation to teach us about our place and responsibility in the kingdom of God. So I want us to take a look here today. So under normal circumstances, if if you were there back then, touring around the great temple in Jerusalem would have just been a highlight of the trip for the disciples. It was a gorgeous place. It had massive white columns. It had gleaming stone floors, elaborate gorgeous artwork, the most rich and important people milling around. It's the kind of place you go and you just, you kind of gawk like an utter tourist. Then their group, Jesus' group there, makes its way over to Solomon's porch. And over here, this was a, a, a cloister on the east side of the temple. And it had the most amazing view. You looked out over between these columns, and you would see 450 feet down and across the Kidron Valley. And on a clear day, the view was just breathtaking. But unfortunately, on this day, there's no time for sightseeing. There's no time to be a tourist, because right away, Jesus is confronted by a mob made up of the Sanhedrin. Now, we always get these names confused, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, who are these different groups? The Sanhedrin are really important to know, especially in the last week of Jesus' life, because they are the Jewish uh, religious and political authority. There's 71 men made up of high priests and other very important men that basically were ruling over all of Israel, except you know, the Romans were kind of above them, so they kind of ignored that the Romans were there, and they, they pretended like they were still in charge. So that you couldn't go higher in the Jewish um, social circles than the Sanhedrin, they were it. And these seventy-one men crashed down all around Jesus and his party. And it must have been very surreal. It would be like if you went to a park and you're just walking along with some friends, and all of a sudden you were just swarmed by a hostile mix of the FBI, members of the U.S. Senate, uh, maybe some Catholic bishops, and Mike Tyson. Thrown in for good, you know, just all these just just looking at you with these angry expressions. I mean, that imagine how intimidating that must have felt. Why were they there? Because of course Jesus had cleared out the Gentiles' court the day before, and the Sanhedrin were not pleased that Jesus had put an end to to their very lucrative sales of the 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 money changing and all the animals. And now they they've regrouped. They were a little paralyzed. After Jesus did that, they didn't know how to respond, but they've had an evening to prepare. so They said, okay, this is our game plan. We're going to come down on him with a hammer. We're going to take him by surprise. And so they go out right up to Jesus. There's no pleasantries right here. They say, how dare you? What gives you the right to do these things? We see that yet again. Mark returns to this theme of authority. Right? Mark's been hammering on this theme of authority for the whole of his Gospels. And for the last dozen chapters, he's been carefully documenting the authority that Jesus has. He has authority in his teaching, authority in his miracles, authority in his leadership, authority in his ministry. And Jesus' resume has been built up. And he's been, Mark's also been pointing to the source of Jesus' authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me by the Father over all these things. So sure, Jesus could have been, you know, they go up to Jesus and say, what gives you the right? And Jesus could have responded instantly said, God the Father gives me the right. But he doesn't. The problem here is that the Sanhedrin had already rejected Jesus' authority. They don't really care to hear the answer to this question. They're really there just to scold him. They don't want an honest answer. Jesus' response is really interesting here. He says, I'll answer you if you answer me a question. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Where did his baptism come from? John the Baptist had authority given to him by God. He was a prophet of the Almighty. The people knew that. Jesus knew that. Everybody knew that. Yet the Sanhedrin had rejected John the Baptist out of hand. They, They could not, they would not accept him as a prophet. So they, they denied his authority. But they weren't going to stand up there in front of Jesus, in front of all the people surrounding Jesus, and say, well, he wasn't a prophet. He just made up his own authority. So they were trapped. And so instead they decided to lie. They said, well, we don't know. We don't know. Their concern, of course, the Sanhedrin, is upon their own power base, upon keeping their, the control over the people, but Jesus' concern is, of course, always on the will of God. And that's what he tries at. If he can't get the minds of the Sanhedrin on the will of God, at least he can get the listeners who are all around him start thinking of the things of God. By who, whose authority did John the Baptist come? God's authority. By whose authority did I come? God's authority. It's a great reminder for us that we sometimes need to get over ourselves, don't we, when we submit to the authority of Christ. We need to let go and relinquish whatever power we think we have in this world, and that includes inside the church. We need to put on the new self that Christ offers us. We need to pray as Jesus prays. We need to care about the things that he deeply care about. We need to to serve him the way that he serves others. Until we really acknowledge Jesus' authority in the way that the Sanhedrin really weren't, then You're always going to be trying to pull away from what he wants done, from the way he wants you to live your life. You're always going to be trying to go, yeah, but, God, I want to do this instead. When we submit to the authority of Christ, there's no buts. There's no coconuts. We just say, yes, Lord, I will obey. So when it comes to, uh, we just had a hermeneutics course a couple weeks ago, and when it came to that, we were talking about the parables. I said there's some general rules of thumb when it comes to uh, interpreting the parables. It's always good to establish those ground rules. I said, well, generally when it comes to the parables, what? There's one main point to understand. Generally when it comes to the parables, they're not allegories. There's just one main point. It's not like words, it's all symbolic. Generally, parables are meant to be comprehended by believers while leaving unbelievers out in the dark. Generally. This parable breaks all those rules. So now I have to go back and say, there's there's always that exception, right? Exception that goes, yeah, but this is that exception. When Jesus goes into the parable of the vineyard here, he, he tells a story he absolutely means for these unbelieving, unbowing, unrepentant Sanhedrin to comprehend and understand every last word he's saying. He wants them to get this story. And so they, they basically just beating them over the head with it. Last week we talked about how what, what was a plant that we said was a national symbol of Israel. See who was listening last week. Fig tree. There you go. You get the gold star. Everybody else. All right. So the fig tree was often seen as the national symbol of Israel. But Israel, you know, you, sometimes a country can have more than one. And there was another plant that was often seen as a, a national symbol, and that was the grapevine. Remember the land of milk and honey and they came back, the spies came back to Moses and they reported what? They carried large grapevine and just all these grapes and they said, look at what's in Israel. So the grapevine ever since then have been closely associated with Israel. And in fact, in the temple where Jesus and the Sanhedrin were at at that time, there was a large carving of a grapevine and it was, it was just beautiful to behold. The leaves of the grapevine were covered in gold, and the the grapes themselves were made out of precious jewels that rich families would donate to the temple. They say, yeah, here's a ruby. Add it to that grapevine. So it was just, imagine just going up and seeing a grapevine covered in gold and jewels. And so everybody understood, listening to this, understood that this parable was about Israel. As Jesus starts talking about a certain vineyard that was created with care and then hand it off to some hired workers while the owner went elsewhere. They understood this. The way I I like this, the way that Jesus describes the formation and the care of this field actually casts our mind, should cast our mind back to the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 5, if you want to open your Bibles to Isaiah 5, feel free to do so. But Isaiah 5 has this song called The Song of the Vineyard. And in that, that song, Isaiah sings about a vineyard that is planted with care on a fertile hillside with just the best of vines and the the watchtowers put over it. And in verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7 of Isaiah, it says this, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. I mean, it can't get any more clear than that. Israel is the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard. It's very clear, crystal clear. So when Jesus is telling them this parable, they have this crystal clear comprehension that God is the owner and creator who established with care this vineyard of Israel. He wanted just the best for his people. And so he creates this wonderful place. And Jesus, in the, in the process of telling them this story, yanks the listener's attention back to the Old Testament just to walk them through how their story has unfolded. Over the last thousand or so years, the whole Old Testament is the story of this vineyard that has been planted with care. Now on the onset, all is well that the listeners are reminded of how much God loved this vineyard, how much He provided for it, how He protected them, how He watched over them, these symbols of a wall around them, of a watchtower over them that makes you feel nice and secure and safe. And so they're reminded of God's providence over the nation of Israel. And then as the story moves forward, God placed the care of this precious vineyard of Israel into his hired hands. In that case, his hired hands were the spiritual leaders of Israel, the clergy, the priests, and the rulers. They were tasked with taking this vineyard and raising them up to know God leading them in worship of God, protecting them, caring for them, nurturing them spiritually. That was their job. Now, my kids and I have recently finished reading uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's one of the best books that I've ever seen written for kids. It takes the whole of the Bible and it sums up God's redemptive art in just a beautiful way. It just ties everything together and, and, and in a way that kids can understand. And one of the things I love the most is that what came across to them is that this isn't just a story that happened to other people a long, long time ago, but that this is their story. This is my story. This is our story. In fact, when we finished it, Jeremiah instantly asked, he said, Dad, can I keep that? I said, sure. And then I caught him opening it up to the beginning again and just power reading right through it. He was so eager to read that wonderful lovely story again that was all about him. He's excited about that. It's good to be reminded of what God has done for us, isn't it? Sometimes, especially when we're in the middle of hardship in our lives, we're in the middle of a really rough patch in our life, we are quick to accuse God of saying, God, you're so far from me right now. You're not being there for me. I feel far away from you. But that only happens, I think, when we're really blind to the big picture, when we fail to see what he's done for us in the past up to this moment. One of the best spiritual exercises I think you could do is to start keeping a spiritual diary of the things God has done for you, both when you're reading Scripture and you're reminded, oh, yes, God did that for me in Scripture, or God promised that for me in Scripture. I'm going to write that down. Or maybe just an experience you had in your life where you say, God was definitely here for me today. Write those things down so that when you are going through those hard times, when you are discouraged, you open that book right back up, and you read your own words. You get convicted by your own words, reminding you of how God has just been holding you close, protecting you, caring for you, providing for you. And you'll go, you know what? He's still doing that right now. Uh, If you're bored this afternoon you want something amusing to do, I found several websites that are all devoted to landlord horror stories. Apparently, there are, there are just forums after forums. I never knew this before this past week. These All these forums and websites devoted to, to just the worst stories ever of what tenants have done to landlord properties. And landlords get together, and they just basically complain about who had the worst tenants, who had the worst. And I read this one, and I... I This guy swore swore it was a true story. So this is not made up. This one landlord posted a story. He said he he delivered an eviction notice to a family that just hadn't been paying for a long time. He said, it's time for you guys to go. And so the tenants, after they had defaulted on their monthly payment, their, their response was really mature, he wrote. He said, first of all, they broke off the door. Then they poured paraffin wax down all the drains They shorted out the electrical system, and then they ripped up the carpet. He said, that's not all. Then they stabbed holes into the drywall. They poured battery acid on all of the tile floors. Uh, They sold all the appliances, all of them, and they spray-painted what was left of the walls. That's how they left the place. The landlord said, after that, I walked away from this business, and I never came back whispering that's awful but the story here that Jesus tells is an even worse horror story than that isn't it look at this parable the tenants that God has given over to this care the owner gave this vineyard over the care of some hired hands they start getting into their mind that this vineyard was their own to do with what they wanted and they refuse even the most basic request from the owner of that vineyard to produce a fruit oh, we're back to that theme of fruit again, to produce a sample of wine from his own fields, from that good fruit that they are supposed to be tending. And in response, the hired servants, they beat up. The servants sent from the owner to ask about this. They start roughing them up, and eventually they start killing them as well. They start killing these servants. And keeping the allegorical nature of this parable in mind, the spiritual leaders of Israel had failed over and over again in their duty. We see that all through the Old Testament. that They just fail so profoundly, so miserably to care for this, the spiritual flock under their care. And even into the New Testament, we've talked over and over again in the book of Mark, how the religious leaders of Israel had just failed in their tasks. Who, who does Jesus go when he gets his own leadership core? He has to go to the common people. He doesn't go to the priests. He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin. So God, in this story, in this parable, God sent them his servants, who are the servants that he sent, to his people to deliver a message in the Old Testament. The prophets. The prophets are his messengers. The prophets deliver a message, and over over and over again, people in the Old Testament do not like that message. And they start roughing them up, and then they start killing them. They mistreat the prophets. Um, Isaiah was cut in two and killed that way. Zechariah was stoned to death in the same court, in the same temple court where Jesus and the Sanhedrin were standing right then, stoned to death. Jeremiah was thrown into prison. John the Baptist, of course, was beheaded. I could go on and on. And it gets worse in this parable, right? Remember that this is not just a story of things that happened in the past. This is their story. This is their story that's happening right now. And Jesus tells of the owner finally sending his one and only beloved son to deliver an ultimatum, to deliver a final message to the hired workers. And how did the tenants treat him? They kill him too. The sinful leaders of Israel weren't just indifferent to God, they were indifferent to the owner of this vineyard. They actively hated him at this point, and they wanted to kill him. And the next best thing that they could do was just to kill everybody he sent. And throughout this story, Jesus gives this explanation of what's going to be happening in just a few days' time of the murder that's going to happen in that city. Now, if you read this parable and you're thinking like you put yourself in the shoe of that owner, how would you respond? How would you respond if somebody mistreated you this greatly? They killed your servants. They mistreated your land. They killed your own kid. Martin Luther, when he was preaching on this sermon, probably did a way better job than I ever did. He said, when he was reading this, he got so violently angry. He said, if this was me, I would have kicked, kicked that wretched world to pieces. Kicked that wretched world. I, I can kind of understand that emotional reaction he had. It reminds me of the principal who had the paddle with a phrase on it. You know what that phrase was, the phrase on the paddle? The end of my patience. Israel's failed leadership had come to the end of God's patience and was about to meet their judgment. That's what this parable is all about. Jesus saying, that's it. We're taking taking control of this, this vineyard away from you guys. You have failed it. You are hurting our servants. You are killing our servants. You're going to kill me. God's taking this away from you. And he's going to put it in the hands of people other other, out on the outside. He was going to take it away from the Jewish leaders. And he was going to put that vineyard into the hands of mostly Gentile Christian leaders. Israel was a vineyard, and it would grow to become the church, and the leaders of the church would be mostly Gentile. That's what was going to happen. However, I, I don't want to... And on a down note here, Jesus actually does end this parable on a triumphant note for everybody who's not a Sanhedrin. Everybody's not one of those uh, leaders. He says, while you guys may have rejected me, you may reject my authority, the Father will establish the Son as a chief cornerstone of the church. I don't care what you guys think you can do to me. God's will will be done, and it will be a wonderful thing. In fact, Jesus says this, the Lord has done this. He's quoting uh, Psalm 118. He says, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous. When I rise again, it will be marvelous. When the Holy Spirit comes down and establishes a church in this world, and people not only have God among them, they have God in them, it will be marvelous. And when my gospel is proclaimed, not just here in Israel, but to all the nations, it will be marvelous. And when souls, one by one, will be redeemed for me, it will be marvelous. 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 It's like, you guys can't rain on my parade. It's going to be a marvelous day. The end of this parable is dismay and death for God's enemies, but it is glory and hope for us. It is glory and hope. Jesus Christ is telling the crowd around the Sanhedrin that God loves them. He says, guys, don't worry. I know you've been mistreated. I know you've been neglected, but God still loves you. He still cares for you. He's been weeping over this situation. He's going to make it right. He's going to make it up to you. This is where the parable of the vineyard finally meets up with our story. Our story. The vineyard of God grew beyond Israel. It became the church. The church universal, not just Knox, but we're just one grape on that vine, aren't we? One grape among many. And we're we're part of the church universal. And as that church, we have others tending to us nurturing us, ministering to our spiritual needs, but also we have the responsibility as a church, as all of us are ministers, to minister and tend to others. It's not just me. That's not my job description. It's not just Pastor Justin. That's all on you. That's, that's, I'm, I'm part of it, but you are too. We are here to tend to each other. We are here to succeed where the Sanhedrin failed. We need to care for each other's spiritual needs. How do you do that? You pray for people. You talk to people. You listen to people. You care for those people. You love those people. And you serve those people in humility, considering themselves as greater than yourself. That's how we tend our vineyard. That's how we make this vineyard grow for Christ. So are we doing that today? Are we starving the vineyard? Are we neglecting it? Are we treating the vineyard like I've treated every plant I've ever owned? That's has eventually withered from lack of water? No, I hope not. I hope not. I hope that we see that God has given us so much blessing with the church, and we need to give back to God in return. So once we put our trust in the authority of God, we see how he's faithfully cared for us over the years. Can we finally be in a position to teach others about God's authority, and we can faithfully care for them in his name? Every Christian, the Bible says, every Christian has a gift, and that gift can be used to minister to others, to tend to others in our flock. So this week, figure out what your gift is. Figure out how you can use that. Tend to your church, because your church is going to be there to tend for you. Let's make this the best vineyard ever. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is not our church. This is your church, and help us to remember that every day. As we walk in these doors, as we look among these people, as we have our identity maybe in Knox, but Lord, our greater identity is in the church and is in you. Lord, you established us. You protected us. You provided for us. You love us, and you want us to do the same for others. So Lord, please convict us this week. Help us to be ever more patient with each other, ever more loving, ever more caring. Help us to be a church that will just gather around each other, we laugh together, we cry together, we rejoice together, we struggle together, and we pray together. Lord, we know that's your will for this church, and I pray that it would be done. In your name, amen. Let's go and let's be God's hands and love in this world today. Uh, remember that if you would like somebody to pray over you or talk with you after this service, we'll have an elder down front here. Now receive the benediction. May the God of endurance and the God of encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.